Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. From Headstuff Studios in Dublin, welcome to Mother Folklore, the podcast about words, Irish, Irish words, and words from Ireland. You're here with me, Emer Duffy. And I'm Dara Roche. And I'm Chris Chevalier. And today we're going to discuss all things medieval. We are indeed. Um, It's a great privilege. One of the things I always loved about studying the humanities is how the different disciplines can learn from each other, touch each other, kind of build on each other. I studied English and History of Art in university and I always found that the overlaps were really wonderful. Emer, you studied a range of subjects as well and they fed into each other a little bit. I did. I did a BA in uh, Medieval Irish and Celtic Studies and Spanish in Maynooth. And then I went on to do my MA in Early Irish also in Maynooth. So I finished up I finished up the day we recorded the first uh, Mother Folklore podcast. That's right, the one that never got played. <laughs> For good reason. <laughs> so Chris, what's your area? Where do you focus on? Um, so currently I'm a PhD candidate in uh, the geography department at Trinity. And my specialization is kind of medieval landscapes and uh, papal taxation. Um, really, I focus on kind of the year uh, 1300 in medieval Ireland, so the Edwardian period. Um, but my my study, it's, it's an interesting mixture of kind of um, looking at historical sources, um, kind of looking at the uh, Irish language at the time, and then um, taking information from these sources and, and turning them into maps so that we can look at kind of the interplay between culture, conflict, but also cooperation, um, as well as the physical environment. Excellent. And this is and one of the things that you've, um, some of your work came to light recently in that you used um, data that hadn't been maybe, that maybe people hadn't put two and two together before, that you put data that was available and from papal taxes, which where the records go right back to the medieval period, to actually looking at land values and societal wealth in medieval Ireland, which is Emer's period of study. Yes, that's actually really interesting because one of the first things that you look at in kind of the secondary school history syllabus is the concept of taxes in medieval in medieval settings. So you kind of learn like, you know, one tenth of your income was paid to the um, the landowners and whatever else. But that's really is as deep as you go into it, whereas now it's really interesting to look at it hmm. and kind of learn more than we previously knew by yeah. just looking at by just looking at records of taxes. 
It's fantastic. And this is good. I worked in tax for a number of years and, and you know, as I moved around and then Emer uh, studied all this kind of med- medieval period and the language. And so we're, we are going to interrogate the bejesus out of you. <laughs> <laughs> so first of all, who actually paid papal taxes in Ireland? Well, basically what these were, the taxes that I look at, they're called papal income taxes. And basically for the purposes of the Crusades or also um, kind of papal emergencies. So during medieval times, you had the papal states and they were often at war. um, And so they would require income. And so what these taxations are is um, they basically take about a tenth of ecclesiastical income. Um, So anyone from a bishop to a a lay priest. um, But what's really useful about these taxations is that the papacy was so interested in getting getting every little penny um, Mm -hmm. that they made these very, very meticulous records. And what they can be used for is basically proxies for the the local economy. So as you were saying, when um, you'd pay about a tenth the tithe to uh, the parish priest, what you can then do is, perhaps it's not an exact, you know, one-tenth of one-tenth, but you can create a relative kind of economic proxy of the the local economy and kind of gauge how how well off it was compared to others. Um, so these these taxations are, are very interesting. Um, the first was in like 1199, and um, by the time 1300, they had become very kind of streamlined and refined to make sure that um, the the papacy could receive regular payments. But also by this time, it had become a very political thing. So uh, the King of England. Um, was also receiving income from these these taxes. Yes. That's the, actually, I'm going to cut in there. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know the way, obviously, the society was very kind of hierarchical. Um, so, you know, r- status was really important in, in medieval Ireland. Is that sort of reflected in this? Or do you see some of the higher status paying a little bit less than the lower status? Are we getting a reflection of modern Ireland here? Mm. Like Derek <laughs> not doing his job in the tax office? <laughs> or is it pretty much like, is it pretty clear that it's kind of more or less a tenth each time? It Well, the way that they did it, it was very standardized. Um, and also the, the, the other issue was um, if you didn't report properly, um, you ran the chance of being excommunicated. And so these priests, bishops, um, they all kind of... Oh, go ahead, sorry. Excommunicated for not paying papal taxes. Exactly. And this is... Okay, for, so a clergyman could be excommunicated for not collecting the correct amount or someone not paying the amount. I mean, here you're made leader of the state, but that's all right. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, Brian, cut that out. <laughs> um, yeah, no, um, one of the ways that they really enforced this was if you were fraudulent um, in terms of the way you p- portrayed the amount of income you made, or if you failed to um, to pay it, you would be excommunicated. And, you know, some people might be like, uh, you know, some people wouldn't care. You know, it, it's this religious thing, but it, it came with a lot of secular things too. You would lose, if you were a clergy person, you would have um, your income stripped from you. People weren't allowed to talk to you. And there was even some punishments where you'd you'd have to hold a hot iron. So it, it was. Uh, oh, yeah. It, it's a a bit more strenuous than you'd think. And they the bishops actually ran risk of excommunication or punishment if the people under them didn't pay or um, report their income properly. So there was a lot of different um, pressures to make sure that you you did report. Um, so 
Yeah, we think uh, pretty accurate. What was the significance of excommunication? I mean, we understand excommunication as it is now, and but was it what in how would that affect a person's daily life in the in maybe the 14th century compared to? I mean, if if say someone was excommunicated and maybe um, yeah, that, 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 how would that affect their daily life? You're saying, well, um, it's it's interesting. Um, I, it really depends on who you were and why you were excommunicated. So there's been instances where, like, the king of France um, was threatened with it, and you know he had a lot of support from his clergy and his people, and he was able to kind of bully the the pope into kind of you know, rescinding that. So it really depended on your um, your status. But if you were, you know, just a, a parish priest and you're trying to, you know, do something fraudulent, you then, you know, you have your whole occupation taken from you and also no one in the um, community is allowed to speak with you. And in medieval times where, you know, um, you're so dependent on one another, uh, it's almost in a way a, a death sentence, Um you know, or, or social ostracization. So it was, it was quite mm. serious. So I'm just thinking now, say, I mean, we, are, we know now, say, we are currently experiencing, this is the year of a uh, papal visit to the Republic of Ireland. That's why I had a good laugh when Chris said uh, a papal emergency earlier on. I was like, <laughs> oh, <come." laughs> And there's been a lot of, I suppose, people are quite alarmed at the actual amount of money that is costing the Irish state for someone to visit. And... And then I suppose people, um, some people are saying that it's justified because he is actually the Pope Francis, Papa Pruncius in Irish is the, I know Papa Pruncius, it sounds funny, but wow. um, it, um, he is a head of state, he's a European head of state that the Vatican City, even though it is, you know, this, a very, very small portion of Rome is is actually a state, but the papal states represented a very large portion of Italy at various different times, the Italian peninsula could act well it, it covered a large chunk of of things and but at the same time back back in the the the, uh, the ability of the pope to con- communicate directly or the office of the pope to communicate directly with a bishop in ireland in the 14th century would have taken months yes um it would have so um what they did with the purposes of these taxations is um they basically, they had papal collectors come in. They would appoint also, um, say, like bishops to to kind of run the show. But they had a lot of uh, merchants from Italy actually present in, in medieval Ireland. Oh. So it's, the merchant of Venice, yeah. am I right? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I think uh, one, one issue with um, the portrayal of medieval Ireland is it's often seen as kind of the edge of the world, mm-hmm. but there was actually quite a large presence of uh, Italian uh, merchants and bankers um, on the island. Um, and they did the business of the Pope, but they were also investing in, in kind of the local economy um, and trading. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that's... Um, Presumably they left roots here. Pre- presumably they left roots here they left an impact here the italian mer- merchants and in places like waterford and oh without a doubt um i think they were very they had a considerable impact on um kind of the pale region um as well as like some of these these medieval urban cores like waterford for example mm. so what you're trying to imply is they were just riding all around them Yes, riding, riding as far as always. I always end up back. Once we're all on the same page here, that's fine. (laughs) You're a fierce Italian, look about Shamer. Really? (laughs) Thanks. I was in Rome actually at the beginning of June. And fun fact I brought back a postcard of the Pope. 
and um, nobody in the office wanted it. So the postcard of the Pope has kind of migrated back to my desk. And I was always like, oh, <laughs> it's funny. I've got a picture of the Pope. And now the Pope is actually coming and people are looking at it and they're like, oh. Context. Yeah. <laughs> Every <laughs> like, year. It was funny, I swear. <laughs> they bring out in Rome, they bring out a handsome priest calendar. <laughs> oh my god I saw it but it was like 9 euro and I didn't want to buy it because I'm not made of money but uh, the priests on it were very handsome it's it's a funny thing you imagine yeah. that there's a lot of priests who are furious that they're the 13th handsomest priest in Italy and <laughs> they don't get on there's only 12 months of the year <laughs> um, yeah no I also found um, a rather nice postcard that I bought alongside the postcard of the Pope and this is a complete tangent here but the postcard was pictures of shall we say, the waste areas of the marble statues you can find in Rome. Oh. Mm-hmm. Oh, my. Yeah, it was, it was an interesting one. Good grief. Imagine the person who pitched that at a meeting. <laughs> well, you know what? They succeeded, and you've got people like me traveling to Rome, buying them and bringing them back. So who's so, laughing at who? So there you have it. Anyway, back to medieval taxation. <laughs> <laughs> so, so I mean, they, they established some sort of, I mean, we, we hear a lot of stories and when, when people have studied the history of taxation, you see how the shape of buildings changed when they decided to change, you know, they, they, they tax a building based on the amount of stories in the front or the amount of windows and an, an awful lot of architectural fashions are influenced by the by changes in taxation over the centuries. That's mm. actually why a lot of um, roofs and buildings, like old buildings in Ireland, ha- were burnt. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the tax was, oh, the tax on a house was if the house had a roof. So in order to avoid paying the tax, they'd burn the roofs. And then they, mm-hmm. they didn't need to pay. Just didn't use the top floor. They used the actual, yeah, the the, <laughs> the, 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 the floor on, on, the, on the very highest one as, as the de facto roof. But yeah. They absolutely did that and they said this is one of the reasons that they kept pigs in the front room as well to say that you couldn't say that it was a, a parlor room which would have been taxed you know as, as being a fancy thing if you kept a pig there <laughs> but were there any um when you think of the actual periods that you are looking at of taxation was it very broad how did they establish income or do they establish just general wealth well, what it was is, um, so basically you had these things, they call them benefices, and they were a form of kind of uh, religious income at the time. Yeah. So in the taxations I'm using, you can find all different types. So you can find some, say, like uh, bishops uh, had a lot of estates around Dublin, for example, and those brought considerable income. Some of them charged like rents in the city, had wood mills and, and whatnot. In terms of... Um, what I look at is mainly the the parish income, and that yeah. was based on tithing. So that would have probably, you know, that would have been about a, a tenth of um, the agricultural wealth, which was the primary form of wealth of the the local um, economy. So th- that's basically basically it's it's sort of a proxy of the general wealth of the area. Mm-hmm. But what it is a, itself is a valuation of basically just that that uh, clergy person's income. What did you find that was different from what was understood before? Well, um, I think there was a lot of interesting things. One was, well, there's a lot of portrayal of medieval Ireland as as sort of a kind of like binomial kind of colonial area, which would Mm -hmm. be quite wealthy and kind of Gaelic Irish areas that would be rather poor. And the maps that I've produced have um, in some ways helped to combat that. So, when you look at, say, um, some of the Gaelic areas, um, so kind of central and western Ulster, those 
parishes are are quite impoverished, but then here's where like physical geography comes in. That area wasn't really tied into a lot of major trading ports. A lot of parishes you can you can see on my maps are kind of isolated and and kind of um, in these kind of nooks and crannies and, and mountain ranges. Mm-hmm. So when you you take things like that into account, um, rather than you know, blame it on the culture. You can then, you know, start attributing it to other things. But I did find that County Clare, which is this kind of O'Brien kingdom, which was situated between, uh, you know, Limerick and Galway in terms of uh, economic hinterland, was actually extremely wealthy and had um, in certain parts very, very high density. And this helps to counter kind of basically sort of prejudices that people mm-hmm. have had concerning uh, the medieval Gaelic Irish. Oh. Um, so one of the reasons I've, I've always been interested in kind of like medieval economic geographies of Ireland is um, to help kind of combat stereotypes. Yeah. So as often the stereotype of, of the Gaelic Irish would be extremely kind of pastoralist. They just herded their, their cattle, didn't engage in trade, things of that nature. Mm-hmm. But when you look at some of the, the evidence, um, as well as you look at my, my maps, you see that when they could trade, they did. Yeah. That and, note on Claire actually is interesting because my mom, who's constantly nagging at me for being single, was like, Emer, <laughs> did you know the highest population of millionaires live in Mayo? And I was like, in Mayo? She's like, yeah, in Mayo. Mm-hmm. So there we go. <laughs> Claire, Mayo, they're a surprising bunch. <laughs> 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 so if anybody particularly any millionaires from Mayo are um are are listening. My Twitter handle is um <laughs> it's Tuck Workimer. <laughs> this but there's uh, I think that there's a thing that was it was linked to Westport, wasn't isn't there was um I think actually currently the uh, the company that makes um Botox has yes, yes, oh my god. The company that make Botox in Westport are the company that have the Botox trademark. Yes. So any other company that makes air quote Botox is only making botulinum, whereas to get the Botox brand, it has to be made in Mayo. That's right. And Isn't that an interesting? <laughs> and fact? all that money snakes back in all those lads who've got a share in the Botox brand. They're all there in Mayo. <laughs> <laughs> yes, keep me young and rich. Thank you. <laughs> So the thing is, we um, one of the things when the Irish language is being revived after the famine with the Gaelic League, um, there was an emphasis on promoting the over idealizing the language of peasants and fishermen, and that the uh, the vocabulary in some of those dictionaries emphasised that. But those of, of people who have studied medieval and earlier Irish see a language of science and of trade and of um, and of sophisticated legal concepts. And you must have come across some of this vocabulary, I suppose, and some of this in the actual Irish language portion of your research. Well, that, that that's actually, um, in terms of like early medieval Ireland, when I did research on um, the Viking era, that was a huge portion of it, looking at, at the terminology and using it as a way to show that, you know, Ireland was a bit more, you know, connected to Europe yeah. and had perhaps um, certain aspects of uh, urbanization and whatnot. So that was a big part of, of that work. Um, when we come to um, the 1300s, uh, um, the kind of linguistic um, emphasis changes elsewhere. But the portrayal is often that the colony um, was kind of urban, um, in, engaged in intensive agriculture, 
and then kind of Gaelic Ireland, uh, quote unquote, was was this sort of rural, yeah, um, very pastoral um, and traditional, um, and it kind of ties into very much into the image created by um, kind of the nineteenth century kind of Celtic revivalist um, nationalists, yeah. Um, yeah. But I, I think that these sorts of dichotomies are very hurtful in a way. And mm. I also, in my thesis, I argue against kind of um, these dichotomies, this sort of binomial like colony Gaelic Ireland. Mm-hmm. And I show that you have areas such as um, the, the Geraldine Holdings and Desmond, where you have this mix of people, of cultures, where you have this sort of, you do have immigrants mm. from England and Wales, you have these landlords that, well, not landlords, but rather aristocrats that are uh, Francophone, that have this Norman ancestry. And then you you have uh, Gaelic-Irish influence in those areas were urban and um, quite wealthy mm-hmm. uh, that my maps show. So I think there's a kind of, um, each region had its own kind of economic and cultural flair. Um, but in terms of, of I, you know, I, I move away from dichotomy. I talk about kind of spectrums. Okay. Because I know actually with um, with the old Irish language, there's quite a large corpus of texts called computus texts. So it's ha- basically how they calculated the date of Easter every year because obviously Easter Sunday, it changes every year. Mm-hmm. So that's actually how there's such um, accuracy in the kind of the records of numbers that we have in the old Irish language because everything was counted. Mm-hmm. And as well as that, there was a lot of emphasis on like the science and stuff as well in in the er, in the early Irish period. So you had a lot of like medical texts going on. You had a lot of um, texts about, you know, astronomy and things like that. So there was always that kind of a link with scholarly Europe and manuscript trading and everything else that kind of brought this. European scholarship and obviously then in turn Irish scholarship and Irish scholarship to European scholarship that um, you kind of have that constant like trade of information so you do have quite a strong corpus of like really dense scientific and numerical language that exists when you wouldn't expect it to. No I I totally agree and you know what's interesting is um, there's still a lot of um, medieval uh, kind of Gaelic texts that still haven't been properly analyzed or translated. And so the British National Archives in Kew have recently gotten um, money to to start sorting through their medieval holdings. They have uh, kind of the boxes upon boxes, rows upon rows of these sorts of um, Irish Irish documents in, in multiple languages. Um, we, we have to ask you now, um, how did those Irish documents end up in Kew in London? <laughs> <laughs> um, did we give them over freely? So, yeah, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the documents I use, and um, just to, to tell you a bit about um, the Irish language um, aspect of, of my work is that I have, uh, well, in, in these documents, which people can get a hold of, um, mm. basically I have... We have a, a few thousand kind of Gaelic place names, and so what's interesting is they are, for the most part, written down phonetically, which is is interesting because it it kind of helps you realize how people spoke and pronounced things. Can um, I ask? Is this? I'm sorry. Is this written down phonetically by the Irish or by the English? This is written down probably um, 
By a mix of both, but I would say primarily by people who spoke only Latin, English, and French. Um, and so what you have is, you know, you have written down phonetic names. And it's very interesting because I have um, valuations for um, like 1302 to 7, and then uh, as, as other valuations made after the, the Bruce invasion in uh, 1319 to 20. And you could be looking at the same place and they're spelled differently. Okay. But you can get, when you say it out loud, um, the you know the phonetic rendering is is quite similar. Mm-hmm. Can you give us an example of one that was uh, striking? Ooh, put him on the spot there, Dark. <laughs> yeah, Jesus, <laughs> he seems sweating already. Um, <laughs> I don't know if I know, I know one on on hand. You can come back to it. It, it is interesting though. Um, if, when you look at say the Dublin region, um, there's a lot of names that haven't changed. Like Kulak, for example, is is the same. Um, and we we actually have um, in in Dublin um, still a lot of medieval influence on modern day place names. So like Leopard's Town yep. was was Leopard's Town, uh, Abbey Street um, and Dame Street, both named after kind of um, medieval uh, monastic and and religious houses. Oh, my favorite actually is Leakslip in Kildare, which now the Irish translation is Leman Brathon, which is the salmon leap. But that's actually an Irish translation of the Norman name of the town. I'm not going to try and pronounce it because that's a whole other language that I've hmm. I've never learned and haven't heard the pronunciation of it in a few years. But basically, the um, the Irish translation uh, of the name is an Irish rendering of the Norman name, which sounds more like leak slip hmm. than it does the Irish one. Oh, fun fact. I'm full of the fun facts. <laughs> like this, because like pe- people are saying, why is Dove of Dublin mean dark pool? That would be Lynn Dove, not Dublin, but it's actually it was the Viking or the the Norse Dwyflin it was taken from, which approximates to Dove and Lynn, but there's the other way around. Mm. And yeah, so it's lots of fun with language. Oh yeah, <laughs> language fun, language fun. God, we are fun at parties. <laughs> um, so. <clears throat> I would say actually, if people are interested in, in uh, like a complete PhD or postdoc research just on on the renderings in these documents, it would be be well worth their time. So, Chris, you um, your research has taken you to sources all across Europe. Um, you, it, you obviously in, in, in Italy for the papal stuff, from France, from the United Kingdom, and from Ireland. Yes, and that must have been an adventure. Yeah, um, it really was. You're like um, Nicolas Cage in National Treasure. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say. <laughs> um, I got to go to the, the Vatican Secret Archives. So that's the one that's featured in the, the Dan Brown books. Um, oh, classic. No way. Yeah. Um, I had to write um, uh, application, uh, send all this documentation. I think I wrote a, a cardinal, if I recall. Um, mm. And they review your application, and then I, I got a, a card the, to go in. And then they put the phone down and say, kill him. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I thought I was cool because I got to go into the reading room in the long room in Trinity. <laughs> so, you know, where like it's all like the red rope um, mm-hmm. barriers around the oh, books. Yes. Yeah, one of the security guards just kind of pulled it back and they were like, go on. <laughs> but uh, oh my god visiting the Vatican mm. is so much cooler that'd be so cool yeah. I love when I visit the Vatican the maps are just the most the, the, the old maps I know that they're not accurate but these are the most beautiful things ever you're just walking through the various map rooms and you can really, really get into it and realize yes all this stuff was paid for by you know um, <laughs> bad things happening kind of food being took out of people's mouths but yeah. mm. at the same time I mean uh, we don't know them 
I was actually, I was in, when I was in Rome back mm. in, in June, I was just staying in this apartment and there was this big basilica um, literally across the street, as close as here to the door, like. Um, and then my first morning that I was there, I was sitting down, I was having a coffee and I thought, all oh, these people were going in. So I was like, oh, I'm going to have a look in there. And um, went in anyway. And next, and they were like, "Oh, you know, you can do a tour of the art for five euro." And I was like, "Grand, look, it's a fiver. We'll do the tour of the art." So next thing, you're having a wander around anyway. I like fifteen minutes before it started, and I noticed all the ceiling was all gold. And I was like, "Oh, that's cool. That must be some nice gold leaf up there." And then you know the tour started, and you're walking around. And next thing, they were like, "Oh, um, the gold that you saw." was um a gift from Isabella as oh. in the Isabella involved in the conquering of South America. Oh. Yeah, to the Pope. And I was like, wow. And then to make it even more on brand for me, mm-hmm. um, we walked into like this big room and there was like this big huge kind of a wardrobe and didn't really take any notice of it. And uh, next thing you know, after your man had done his kind of talk about the room and everything else, he like opened up this press and it was just full of manuscripts. Oh. And I was like, oh my God, there's so many manuscripts. But they were all in like Greek and I was like, oh, not a hope. <laughs> but um, that's a complete tangent. Sorry, Chris, what were you saying? <laughs> you, you, you do have to tell us the, the, the time you felt closest to Indiana Jones or something like that in, in your mission. Did you, did you ever feel in personal danger that if the Pope found out you were doing this research? Um. <laughs> Actually, there was one time, um, the archives are, um, you have to go through five security checkpoints to get in. This is really fun because I have no idea where the story is going. Like, (laughs) the scene has been set and I'm glued. Um, I, um, I, within the archives as well, there's security. And one time I, um, I gave them a, a, a kind of request for a photocopy. And it was quite funny because half an hour later, I saw about five guards coming over to me and they, they asked me to get up and they bring me into a room. At this point, I'm sweating. And I was like, oh my God, what happened? And what it turned out was um, none of them spoke English very well. So they thought between the five of them that, that we could have a full conversation because they needed to ask me about the paperwork. But when when they oh, brought no. me into like a small room with the five of them, I was like, I'm going to die. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry for looking at how much taxes paid in Castle Bar in yeah. 1482. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, I also had a funny uh, kind of tiff with uh, one of the Vatican archivists where I was saying that I was, I was looking for um, Irish specific records and he kept coming back to me with with English volumes oh no and Ooh. and I kept being like no you know Ireland is for this you know is, is separate and he's like no no it's part of part of England but whatnot and I was like Irish people and the Ireland the island of Ireland have never been part of England <laughs> <laughs> and he just looked at me and I was just like glaring at him and he's like I'll see what I can do <laughs> You're fighting the good fight, Chris. You're fighting the good fight. That's a that's a uh, interesting point in terms of because, because obviously you are when you go to Italy or you go to France and like, how is the Irish stuff categorized? Because I remember when I was in France and I saw Beckett was under the French writer section and I was like, bah, bah, bah. yes, he's categorized. And then similarly, I suppose some other um, when you, sometimes you see Irish uh, particular points in Irish history or something would say, well, actually we're categorizing this as you know we're going to see Joyce as a Paris writer. Mm. We're going to see Beckett as a French writer because he writes in French, and we're going to see, we're going to put this point of Irish history because the the it was part of the United Kingdom at this point. We're going to put it under there. So it must, I'd say, it must have been a categorization nightmare. Well, thankfully, 
with the records I'm looking at, um, they were they were pretty good in in um, separating Hibernia, uh, oh. which was which made my life easier. So I went to the Vatican. The first thing, I, the first task was I was trying to argue that you know these documents that I'm using you, you know are accurate and and usable for for this these purposes. And the, the second thing was to, basically I wanted to see if there were more um, Irish papal taxation. Um, that we could we we could map and use, um. So when I went there, um, I found a lot of information that does show that you know, um, the taxation in Ireland was really no different than elsewhere in Europe, except for for certain things. Um, it's quite interesting. The the papacy kept trying to prevent rebellions against uh, the English king in Ireland. Oh, um, and also kind of, which I I found those letters quite interesting. We're getting into the good bit here. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this is what people want to hear. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I'll be honest. I, in many ways, the Catholic Church has never been a friend to the Irish people, and uh, it, this is especially true in, in medieval times. There was the, you know, this document. Still, a lot of um, discussion of whether or not it's legitimate. But Lord Abilator, where basically um, the Pope giving giving control of, of Ireland to the English King, but. Um, for the purpose of these taxations, I mean, these taxes were um, around 1300. They weren't really wholly going to the Pope anymore. They large amounts of them were going directly to the English crown. Um, and there was kind of, um, there was a lot of um, kind of, sometimes the papacy really was, was you know, coercing and saying like, you need to, to obey the English king and you have to, to pay these taxes. Um, there were some medieval popes that were sympathetic towards the the Irish people. Um, mm. The reason uh, to you asked a question earlier. Um, it's interesting. The reason why these documents were found in in England is is quite interesting. Um, Edward II he basically wanted all this taxation data um, for the purposes of saying that there were too many Irish um, dioceses and they should be turned into larger dioceses, but his goal for doing this was to then replace Irish bishops, Gaelic Irish bishops, with um, bishops that were amenable towards his cause. Of course. Um, and so that's another reason why I went to the Vatican archives, was I was hoping that maybe some of these documents that he had sent the papacy were still there, but um, there was no dice. Um, I went to, to London a few months ago, and I, I was able... Um, I will say at the, at the British Archives, they they now have some um, uh, Irish historians and medievalists, you know, to bring in the expertise and kind of you know reclaim Irish history. Mm. Um, and it looks like there is a possibility that within the archives, some more of these taxations have been um, misplaced, not by them, but like a hundred years ago, and that there may be more of this data. Um, but that's why they were they were brought over to England and, and found there. Um, when did papal taxation stop? Uh, it continued um, for some time, um, but it, it changed um, in the end between um, for different countries. So, mm -hmm. you know, in France, for example, um, there was a lot of um, money that was going to the church where you have the, the church was very invested in, in kind of agriculture and whatnot there. Because we hear a lot in school about how... Uh Catholic people had to pay tithes to the Church of Ireland, even though they weren't, weren't not participating themselves, and but it was never put in the context of replacing papal taxes or anything like that. There's a history project for anyone who's listening. Who yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Um, yeah, I focus really on um, these these uh, papal tents that they call them um, around you know the the 1300s, but they did continue on into the early modern period. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, good stuff. So, Chris, before we finish up, where else? Where can people find out more about your research? Well, first thing, um, I really encourage people to to take a look at these resources themselves. So, okay, you can actually go on um, archive.org. And you can type in a calendar of documents related to Ireland. Um, and if you look at volume five, um, the latter half of uh, that volume is these taxations. Um, I will say that um, the transcriptions there, um, be wary of the, basically the editors tried to put modern place names into where these um for some of these medieval sites, they're not all accurate. So okay. I would say um Use the database Loginum um, to try to fill in that. And then um, as for myself, I'm hoping to um, publish back-to-back um, two kind of um, illustrative articles in History Ireland. Um, Excellent. So that to make these more accessible to the, the general public. So we're hoping that those will come out in um, January and then uh, the second round, second one will be in March. So please keep a lookout for that. Um, you can, uh, as for me, um, I have a school, um, like Trinity little webpage, um, where you can find my email address. If anyone is interested, you know, feel free to, to send me an email. Um, and I, I'd be more than happy to, to tell people more about this. Um, I'd also say that, um, if you're really very interested in these documents and doing your own work, you can go to the Robinson library in Armagh. And, um, there was a 19th century historian, who tried to do similar work to me of trying to rectifying these medieval place names to modern place names. And he has um, a manuscript there where he he did part of them, and, and those are quite accurate. Um, but I hope that after my thesis um, and, and some publications, my next step is hopefully to turn this into a transcript so people can, mm. can use it. Um, or perhaps we've also talked about making kind of online database. Oh, brilliant. Mm-hmm. Like with the, the down survey that they have for, mm. for Ireland. Um, and I think people would really like this because, you know, you can go and uh, learn about, you know, um, what you're, you know, where you came from in medieval times. Um, mm. some, and, and people I'm hoping can use the data for their own studies. And um, as you were saying, there's all different types of um, uh, expertise out there, th- different opportunities for the humanities, the physical sciences, social sciences to come together. So I think uh, linguists would find this very interesting, um, archaeologists, people of all types. So yeah. Um, Definitely. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. Well, absolute pleasure. So um, uh, thank you so much, Chris Chevalier, for coming along. And until the next time, it's a salon for me. It's a salon for me. Salon for me. Thank you. Hey, Derek here. Thank you so much for listening to today's show. Motherfuck Club comes out every Friday in the Headstuff Podcast Network, and we would love you to rate and review us on wherever you get your podcasts, and also through word of mouth, tell your friends if you enjoy the show. Thank you very much to Kirsten Shield for doing the artwork for today's episode, and to Brian for producing us, and to all the Headstuff backroom team, Paddy, Alan, and all the gang. You can contact the show at motherfucklore at headstuff.org by email, or at the Irish for or at motherfucklore on Twitter. You can also find Garadine and me, Emer, from Mother Folklore at this year's Electric Picnic. Oh. 
I know we're just we're just going to turn up. We're not going to do it. <laughs> I'm just kidding. At <laughs> uh, quarter past four on the Sunday of EP, myself and Garadine are going to be chatting away live in the minefield stage of Electric Picnic. Oh my God. With a surprise guest. With a surprise guest. Oh my God. I know. Oh, a year. Oh, my year. O-M-D. Oh my God. <laughs> Um, so please, if you're at Electric Picnic, come along to our live show, have the chat with us, ask us some questions. We had so much fun um, doing our last live podcast. We want to see some of the same faces. We want to see some new faces. Get your EP glitter all over your faces. Mm. Get your fancy EP outfits. I still have to find mine. So please be kind to me if you see me on the day in a pair of wellies <laughs> and a raincoat. Um, and please come say hello. We want to meet so many of you. And we want to have the chats. You know you want to. So, until then, take care and slon. See you at EP. This has been a production of the Headstuff Podcast Network. Can I have a jelly, please, first? No, fuck what? me. Do you want a gold bear or a yellow belly? <laughs> oh, a gold bear.